This episode of New Politics was released on the 27th of May, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, racism rears its ugly head again in the media. We look at the continuing case of Julian Assange, who is still in jail. And the Australia-Indian relationship is strong, but is it strong enough to start questioning human rights in India? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. Don't worry, Scott. PwC won't hire me either. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but... Whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. We need to talk about racism in the media again and this time it relates to the ABC journalist Stan Grant. He's walked out of the ABC after a barrage of racist abuse after his presentation about the effects of colonisation during the ABC's coronation broadcast several weeks ago. And, of course, that's not when it all started. Generally, people of colour, women and people from migrant backgrounds working in the media and in politics, they cop a lot of abuse and racism. But this latest round of attacks seems to have been the final straw. And Stan Grant has taken indefinite leave and he might not be back again. And these attacks on Stan Grant, well, they've been initiated by a news corporation. And whenever there's racism in the media, news corporation Rupert Murdoch are never too far behind. They amplify the racism against Adam Goods when he was hounded out of the AFL almost a decade ago. They'll ramp up issues in Alice Springs. They attacked the Black Lives Matter movement several years ago. They pushed the African gangs agenda of the Liberal Party in Victoria back in 2018. And now they're magnifying all the rubbish put forward by Peter Dutton on The Voice to Parliament. Now, the media has had too much of a free reign on this issue for far too long. Most of the media is too white. It's too middle class. It's too Anglo. And that goes for all of them, the ABC, Nine Media, Seven, Ten, News Corporation, The Guardian. Some of those pay lip service to these issues. Some, like News Corporation, have got outright hostility. And then there's the sewer pipe of social media. Whenever these issues arise, there's generally a discussion about how terrible it all is. We need to be better and something needs to be done about it. But then... Nothing is done about it. It's hard to say whether the media is a reflection of the broader society or whether it's just a reflection of itself. But unless change is implemented somehow, it's just going to remain the same. It's appalling, really, that other voices get shouted down from elements of the right led by News Corp. Yasmin Abdel-Magid said some quite temperate and reasonable things about the inclusivity of Anzac Day and was essentially hounded out of the country. You didn't have to agree with her, although as it happens, I did agree with her on that. And it often too, it's often not directly racist. It's more of a undercurrent of this person is not qualified to speak on such topics that do not concern her. And I think too, there was probably an element of good old misogyny and sexism Definitely a woman of Middle Eastern origin was not allowed by certain gatekeepers to have an opinion on something that needs to be discussed. Same with Stan Grant. Now, 
I'm being a little cautious here because I don't want to speak to Stan Grant's experience of being an Indigenous man. I cannot know that. Only he can know that. And this is true if it's Warren Mundine, Noel Pearson, Lydia Thorpe as an Indigenous woman, Lewitcher O'Donoghue, again, as an Indigenous woman. I don't think it's fair or right to deny their experience when they talk about it. I also think that you should be allowed to disagree with ideas. I know Stan Grant got a lot of, I'll call it valid criticism for his hosting of Q&A. And by valid, I don't know if it was true or not, but because I rarely watch it. But he spoke over the top of people, brought all the conversation back to him. He interrupted guests that he seemed to not like, apparently. Now, again, I, I don't know that that's true, but those are valid criticisms of a host if, if they happened. What he said in that article of his, which was very good, and if you haven't read it, I commend you to read it, that he'd been always felt that he wasn't quite allowed to speak up. But I think what he was talking about was the fact that there was always that element that would try and take away the legitimacy of what he was trying to say, implying that because he wasn't of the dominant Anglo faction, he really didn't have any right to criticise Australia and that he'd done well for himself. And again, there's a dog whistle in there. And the other thing too with racism in Australia is that it's very insidious. You can be racist without really realising it because it's the, the, the way we speak about things, it's the way we talk about things, it's the way we approach things. And so people can feel excluded even when the intention is not to, but because the language is set up in such a way, people feel excluded. Again, my view is ideas are to be discussed and argued and we can get passionate about them. Stan Grant has described himself as a proud war adjury man. And of course he should be. He's got that perfect right to be. Same with, again, people who I vehemently disagree with. Warren Mundine, for example. He can be proud of his heritage in, in the way that he sees fit. I'm never going to take him on on that. And I'm never going to say, you know, you're not a valid Indigenous person. Other Indigenous people may say that. But it's not for me to, to argue. But when it comes to his politics, we can debate it all up and down the eastern seaboard. <laughs> but it becomes hard. And Stan Grant made a final reflection at the end of the Q&A program on the ABC during the week, and here's a small snippet of it. I am down right now. I am. But I'll get back up and you can come at me again. And I'll meet you with the love of my people. My people can teach the world to love. As Martin Luther King Jr. said of his struggle, we will wear you down with our capacity to love. Don't mistake our love for weakness. It is our strength. We have never stopped loving and fighting for justice and truth. The hard truths to speak in our land. Yinjamara Winangana means to live with respect in a world worth living in. And we in the media must ask if we are truly honouring a world worth living in. Too often, we are the poison in the bloodstream of our society. I fear the media does not have the love or the language to speak to the gentle spirits of our land. I'm not walking away for a while because of racism. We get that far too often. I'm not walking away because of social media hatred. I need a break from the media. I feel like I'm part of the problem. 
And I need to ask myself how or if we can do it better. To my people, I have always wanted to represent you with pride. I know I might disappoint you sometimes, but in my own little way, I've just wanted to make us seen. And I'm sorry that I can't do that for a little while. To my family, I love you. And to my mum and dad, good night. He also took a swipe at ABC management for not offering any support during all of the abuse and for allowing the abuse to come through from News Corporation, who seems to have been the main agitator of this. And there was an interesting dynamic during the week, and it's one that we rarely see from the ABC. The head of ABC News, Justin Stevens, and the managing director, David Anderson, they've blamed News Corporation for whipping up a frenzy of racist abuse against Stan Grant, not that they did anything about it, and they've accused News Corporation for endlessly attacking the ABC. They were also questioned at Senate estimate hearings by Senator Sarah Hanson-Young. From where I sit, News Corporation have been attacking the ABC for years, and it's basic sport for them. Beat up on the public broadcaster, and they have a, they have a track record of going after individuals. They've done it to women... They've done it to women of colour. They've done it to First Nations people. They go after them. They whip up the frenzy of haters and then they sit back and watch good people be torn down. And you can't sit here today and tell me that you haven't seen that pattern happen until now. Surely. This is not new. So, uh, a few things, Senator. The first is uh, the... Murdoch family and the ABC have had an interesting relationship since the 1930s. Um, so there's nothing new there. Um, secondly, the, the coverage of the ABC and the criticism of the ABC's coverage was not limited to News Corp. Um, Nine and other publishers uh, were very critical as well. Do we see the Nine newspapers trawling through ABC journalists social media feeds? I'm not sure. Why does the ABC continue to provide a platform for representatives from News Corporation when they so clearly, as a corporate entity, have such disdain for the public broadcaster? There are some good journalists at News Corp. We've we've got good journalists in our ranks that have come uh, from News Corp. You know, I get there's a valid question as as to would we think about it. But there are some, some journos that we do want to pull on to, whether it's insiders or whether we have Q&A, um, whether it's the drum, uh, for, for we are seeking uh, their view and perspective. So that sounded like two men who were very scared and cowered by the presence of News Corporation. And they sounded like people who don't know what public broadcasting is all about and what reporting news and journalism in the public interest is all about. And this has been going on for years. The appearance of News Corporation journalists 
on the ABC, and people have complained about it for many, many years, but just been dismissed as the riffraff hoi polloi on social media. And now that the questions are appearing at Senate estimates, well, maybe they'll start taking notice of it. And the other factor is, well, what's the reason for so many news corporation journalists appearing on the ABC? Why are they there? What's the excuse? ABC journalists don't appear on Sky News, so why do they appear on the ABC? And if the ABC really wanted to support Stan Grant, they would have ceased immediately that arrangement that they have with News Corporation, either as a form of protest or pushback against the most vile News Corporation in history. So the memo to ABC management is stop inviting News Corporation journalists onto Q&A, onto Insiders, onto The Drum, whatever outlet they've got, don't have them on and stop employing News Corporation journalists and managers. These people come from a very, very bad organisation, a news outlet that has got bad and unethical standards and practices and is ruining journalism and the body politic in Australia. This is a corporation that in another country, but I suspect it's probably or something similar has probably happened here, hacked a dead girl's phone to try and see what the messages were. Just completely unethical and the people responsible are still working for the company so it's it's not as if it was a an anomaly or a or a lapse in judgment from people who shouldn't have been in the position nothing worse on television than insiders when they have a bunch of news corp journalists who by definition aren't insiders anymore because they don't have the access to government that they did when the coalition was in the rule i'd have was would be only ABC journalists or independent freelance journalists, not the Daily Telegraph. And there was the inquiry they've been holding where the very weak answer, oh, News Corp has some good journalists. And that's not the point. Yeah, they, they want to see the ABC defunded. They've quietly brought them back, but IPA members. One of the things in the IPA manifesto is to defund the ABC. Why would you have these people on? They need to be given a university course on what balance is. Balance isn't just bringing in the opposite. We've got uh, Brian Cox on. Let's bring in renowned gibbera Malcolm Roberts as balance. It was embarrassing for all involved. Uh, Roberts embarrassed himself. The ABC embarrassed themselves by putting him on against someone with an interesting and valid point of view. And I know that was some years back, but really the attitude hasn't changed. Q&A. When it has a good panel, I'll watch it, but it rarely has a good panel. And I can't remember the last time Insiders had a good panel. They always wreck it by bringing in someone who shouldn't be there. And these are shows that people in our position should be watching and should be engaging with. But there's nothing to engage with. I, I would rather watch Paint Dry on YouTube. And the event that led to all of this was during the ABC's broadcast of the coronation of King Charles several weeks ago. And at New Politics, we're still reveling in this vainglorious event. I think we're on to our final bottle of champagne, David. But the ABC invited Stan Grant to discuss colonialism and the effects of British rule in Australia on Indigenous people. And there was a range of other people there as well, including Craig Foster, Teela Reid, Julian Lisa. But... It seems that all of the abuse has been targeted at Stan Grant. Even mm. though he was an invited guest and not the organiser of the panel, it was the ABC that organised this event. And I'm, personally, I'm happy to hear this conversation about colonisation at any time, but maybe if the panel discussion took place during the Queen's funeral, there might have been a cause for complaint, not for me. I've got absolutely no time for the 
royal family. But it took place during the coronation. Nobody died. It's not a funereal moment. I think that it's a good time to talk about the effects of colonisation and the future of the monarchy in Australia. But all of the abuse was led by conservatives who were the bastions of privilege in Australia, News Corporation, the Australian Monarchist League, supporters of the royal family. And I don't know if they got upset because their high teas and toasts of fine whiskey to the new king were spoiled because of a bit of a discussion about black stuff and feeling guilty about colonialism. But this is the sign of a baby country, a country that hasn't grown up yet. There has to be a broad range of debate in Australia. There's a minority of people who support the monarchy and there's even less who support King Charles. And for these conservatives, they just want Indigenous people, migrants, all the people who are different, they just want them to stay in their place and do as they're told. And they'll get their trial army out in force to attack and racially abuse these people if they challenge the prevailing orthodoxy and abuse them into submission or hope that they disappear, which is what has happened with San Grant. And it's totally unacceptable and it's really got to stop. It's appalling that these people, maybe I should say those people, uh, control the debate here. And As a historian, I acknowledge the ritual of the coronation and what it means for British people. What it means historically for Australia, should it have been broadcast here? Sure. Did it need nine hours of blanket coverage? That I'm not so sure about. The English police arrested protesters who were in a planned and approved protest, and it was miles away, so it was was barely worth it. And they arrested them anyway, which was a disgraceful display of British power. I won't go into the tradition and how old the tradition is, but hint, not that old. Of the massive robes and the crowns and the the whole spectacle, I felt it looked ridiculous and, and felt very anachronistic. And I think it was good to get somebody like Stan Grant, who is articulate, and to say, well, look, there's all this happening. But on the other hand, we have to remember from my perspective, there's all of this. And then it basically told, oh, you're not allowed to have those opinions because you should appreciate what you've got. The implication, it can be taken off you at any time because of who you are. I don't blame him for taking a break. I hope he's all right. And I think that the ABC has a rare burst of courage. Well, let's let's bring in another opinion and let's bring in some actual balance, not just pure contrarianism. Let's bring in someone who can talk from another perspective. And, yeah, he gets hammered by a small group of irrelevance. The tide has turned. Australia is no longer a British country. Australia is an independent nation and needs to start acting like one. And in response to all of this, News Corporation has doubled down. They've attacked the ABC even further. They said that all the racist abuse that has been targeted towards Stan Grant or anybody else, it hasn't got anything to do with them. Of course it has. It's got everything to do with News Corporation. Now, the ABC isn't a perfect organisation. In fact, it's a very imperfect organisation and has become more imperfect over the past decade or two. It's as white-bred, as conservative and as middle-class as any other mainstream media organisation in Australia. And maybe it is a little bit better in some respect, but racism in the media is a real problem. Stan Grant did say that the ABC management didn't offer any support at all during this time and That doesn't surprise me. They haven't got any Indigenous people in senior management positions. None of their board is Indigenous. There's very few people from Asian or other migrant backgrounds. So they haven't got any direct experience of racist attacks and racism. So when it does happen, 
they just don't think that it's a big deal. They've made noises about doing something about it now, but it's not like it's 1950 when no one in these types of positions knew anything about it or didn't want to know anything about it. These issues have been known about for a long time, but they still get being swept under the carpet. Or I've never had a racist to take on me, so why should anyone else complain about it? You know, the ABC board needs a total shake-up. And I suspect ABC management needs a total shake-up too. I think we have to grow up as a nation. We have to grow up. And it's funny, each time we try to grow up, the usual vested interests come in and prevent it somehow. And News Corp being the mouthpiece for these vested interests. It's funny how the opposition to The Voice, and we'll be getting back to this, is all based on non-fact. I haven't heard one single reason to vote no that's been based on fact. I've heard a lot of, oh, it's a secret chamber and it's this and it's that and they'll be able to veto and they'll be able to, well, despite the fact the Solicitor General has gone through and said nothing will happen. It's interesting that they hammer Stan Grant and, let's be fair, Lydia Thorpe. And interestingly, not Jacinta Price, interestingly not Warren Mundine. Noel Pearson gets a hammering. So if you have the right opinion, you might be able to get through. Ken Wyatt went from being a sane and sober voice of Indigenous rationality to being a ratbag who doesn't know what he's talking about when it came out that he was one of the authors of the the documents that led to the voice referendum. So again, certainly ideas should be discussed, should be argued and argued with passion and argued with that's all good. But when we start putting in who can have opinions and what opinions these are, we've got a long way to go as a country. And it will take a long, long time for the mainstream media to change, even when it would be in its interest to make that change, to become more diverse and more reflective of the 26 million people who live in Australia. But it will never make those changes while most of the people in the sector are middle class, Anglo and white. And it's almost reached the point where mainstream media is not broadcasting anymore it's narrow casting it's narrow casting to a smaller group of people that are reflective of the people who make up the industry and we can see what will happen management will say at this stage oh well we should have done better and they'll make some promises about cleaning up their act do not very much about it and then we'll have the same type of event happening in a few years time and then the cycle will continue now we did hear from senator hansen young earlier on but She introduced legislation for a federal inquiry into News Corporation last month, and we're still waiting to see what happens with that legislation, but we're getting more incidents and more good examples of why there needs to be a commission or an investigation into News Corporation and Rupert Murdoch in Australia, and and it better hurry up. Rupert Murdoch is 92 years old, and he has to hear what Australia really thinks of him before he dies, and he also needs to know what a vile and destructive influence he has been on the Australian media and on Australian politics. In a just world, Murdoch would have gone to jail after the Leveson inquiry, and the image was that they escorted him out the front door and snuck him around through the back door in 10 Downing Street. And it's pretty much the same thing here. And I don't understand why Labor continually defers. I understand wanting to try and influence good press. That's okay. But you can safely ignore News Corp. No one reads it. The piles and piles of unread newspapers 
and those piles are getting smaller because they're printing less. They try and give them away at airports and at other places, and no one's interested. The age of the press baron, I think, is, is dead, or it's, it's in its death throes, really. The Guardian might survive. Fairfax might survive if it gets better management. But that hard right uh, News Corp. And the press has been in terminal decline since the 1940s, printed press, exacerbated by online. Now, admittedly, a lot of people read the same type of papers they're not buying online, but they're not subscribing. Subscription numbers are too low to really survive. And all politicians have to do is stop listening to the papers they don't like, and they'll find that they'll neutralise those problems. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Julian Assange has been in the spotlight this week and he needs to keep being in the spotlight until he is released. Stella Assange is a human rights defender, lawyer and activist and Julian Assange is her husband. She appeared at the National Press Club and was part of a rally in Hyde Park during the week and this is part of the continuing push to free Julian Assange from Belmarsh Prison in London, where he's been in prison since 2019. And this has gone on for far too long. There has been a great deal of background diplomacy from both the coalition and the Labor governments, but it's reached the point where soft diplomacy just isn't going to get Julian Assange out of jail. There's 48 Australian MPs and senators who have called on the United States government to stop this pursuit of Assange, and virtually every media associate in democratic countries all around the world have called for his release as well and there is no real purpose in incarcerating Julian Assange for any longer. Yeah, I don't know what they're trying to achieve except to stop other people uh, doing the same thing. The internet changed secrecy completely. All it takes is someone to open up a site where people can upload documents and your whole secrecy is gone. Now, the WikiLeaks site, last time I looked at it, which was some years ago, was not terribly useful if you didn't know what you were looking for because the documents just got uploaded. And when I went there, there were our local council stuff from the middle of America. There was Pakistani documents on some kind of corruption in no order and in no easily navigable format. But if you know what you're looking for, it was all there. And I suppose as a journalist, you should be knowing what you're looking for. Whatever he put up, and we know what he put up, but the military-industrial complex did not like. And as an Australian citizen, he should be afforded the rights of an Australian citizen. This apparently includes living in the Ecuadorian embassy in London for six or seven years. And he eventually 
under political pressure, is evicted from there. And the only reasons they could give is that he was messy and that he could be rude to staff. Now, how much of that is true, we don't know. And is that a reason to evict a political prisoner? I'm not quite sure. And some critics of Julian Assange have suggested, well, he's not really a journalist, and plus he did all that work against Hillary Clinton and gave support to Russia to help elect Donald Trump back in 2016, and I didn't think one person had all of that power, but all of that doesn't matter. Human rights has to be universal. It can't just be based on whether we like someone or not or approve or disapprove what their actions might have been or whether he's a journalist or not. And it's not like journalists have got special privileges or special rights anyway. And if they did, David, well, we'd be living like kings. But none of this relates to Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or whether he's a journalist or not. It's all to do with the release of material of the Baghdad airstrike by the United States military back in 2007, and that killed 18 innocent Iraqi citizens and two journalists. The video footage itself, it was released by WikiLeaks in 2010. Now, The person who actually leaked the footage, Chelsea Manning, she was actually charged under the US Espionage Act and jailed in 2013 and was released in 2017 under a commutation from President Barack Obama just before he left office. And a commutation is similar to a pardon. It's not exactly the same, but it's very similar. So the person who leaked the video footage in the first place has been released from jail and They've been free for over six years, yet the person who only published the material has essentially been imprisoned for over 10 years and been in a real prison for just over four years. So there's obviously a number of inconsistencies in this matter, but whatever the case is, it's time for Julian Assange to be released from jail and it's time for him to come home. Yeah, any point they wanted to make has been made. There's talk that the US government want him executed. I don't know the law US law well enough to know if that's a thing that they can do. But that would prove nothing except that their devotion to the Bill of Rights is on the right to bear arms and that's it. The secrets he's exposed are no longer relevant. He should be let home. And the Australian government is limited in what they can do, but they can continue to make representations to the United States government and continue to visit him in jail. As the Australian ambassador to the United Kingdom, Stephen Smith, did a few months ago, here's the Prime Minister responding to a question from the independent MP, Andrew Wilkie, during question time. Prime Minister, you would be aware that Stella Assange is in Parliament House and, in fact, is in the gallery right now. Prime Minister, why are you not meeting with Stella today? Will you meet with Stella tomorrow? And why won't you do more to see Julian Assange reunited with Stella and their young sons, Gabriel and Max? Who I meet with is determined uh, by the priorities uh, that my office has. A priority for us isn't doing something that is a demonstration it's actually doing something that produces an outcome. And that's my focus, not grandstanding. And so if I thought that that would help, Order. if I thought that that would help, then uh, yes, there would be a case that the member uh, for Clark has. But I've made it very clear to the US administration and also to the UK administration of the Australian government's view, and I appreciate Uh, the fact that that is now a bipartisan view after the comments uh, last week of the Leader of the Opposition. That enough is enough. 
when it comes to the ongoing incarceration of Julian Assange, that nothing is served from the ongoing incarceration of Julian Assange. And what I have done, what I have done is to act in the most effective way possible. Uh, if uh, having a demonstration produced an outcome, uh, then there would be an argument. Uh, but what I have done is, is act uh, diplomatically in order to maximise the opportunity that is there of breaking through an issue which has gone on for far too long. So Anthony Albanese, he seems a little bit dismissive there, but Australia mm. has been able to secure some of its citizens from some very oppressive governments in the past, from Libya, Cambodia, Bulgaria, Colombia, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and they haven't been successful in all of those cases, but you'd think that they'd have a better chance with a supposed ally in the United States. And maybe they'll just have to bargain harder or promise to purchase one less submarine under AUKUS as a bargaining chip. But here's what Stella Assange said at the National Press Club during the week. Australia is the United States' most important ally. That's clear. Maybe this wasn't the case 10 years ago. So it's important to recognise that, that Australia plays an important role and can secure Julian's release. Julian's life is in the hands of the Australian government. And it's not my place to tell the Australian government how to do it, but it must be done. Julian has to be released. And I place hope in Anthony Albanese's will to make it happen. I have to. This is the closest we've ever been to securing Julian's release. And I want to encourage and do everything in my power to help that happen. So she suggested that it's the closest ever that Julian Assange has been to being released from jail. And that could mean anything, of course. It could be another week or it could be another couple of years. But sometimes it does happen very quickly. Mumdu Habib and David Hicks, they were released from Guantanamo Bay in 2005 and 2007 without much of a warning from the United States government. But if the Australian government wants to show a commitment to protecting whistleblowers or the people who reveal the unpalatable truth about what types of actions their government gets up to, well, it has to force the release of Julian Assange. And I know it's a different sort of situation, but they also have to stop the trials of other whistleblowers in Australia, David McBride and Richard Boyle. These are secrets that relate to different issues, but the same outcome has to be achieved in all of these cases. Stop the persecution of people who reveal the truth and uphold the human rights of Australian citizens. It's pretty simple, really. Yeah. If Australia wants to be more than a lackey to the US and the UK, and at the moment I'm not sure that they do, that's what you need to do. Uphold citizens' rights. Bang. Free Assange. Or at least bring him back here where we can deal with him ourselves. Rightly, when a drug dealer gets arrested, the Australian diplomatic wing in, say, Indonesia, the Australian diplomatic wing swings behind to try and make sure that they'll get a, a fair trial, that they'll be treated at the type of level that you'd expect a prisoner to be treated at in Australia. And yet this has never happened with Assange, whose crimes may be or certainly no worse than drug smuggling into countries where they tell you we do not want drug smuggling. It's a very sad situation. And hopefully it's right that there's a positive resolution coming very soon. Thank you.
This is the new politics podcast, available at Apple and Google Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and you can support us at Patreon, and also find us at our website, newpolitics.com.au. The Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is in Australia and the purpose of the meeting is to strengthen trade between Australia and India and develop a green hydrogen program. Now it's unclear what this exactly means but there is an international push to produce green hydrogen. It's not actually any different to any other form of hydrogen but the way that it's produced uses renewable energy sources and this meeting was always due to happen. Modi was coming to Australia as part of the Quad meeting that was cancelled when US President Joe Biden announced that he wasn't going to attend. Now the relationship between Australia and India is a very important one for a wide range of reasons. There's around 800,000 people of Indian heritage living in Australia and that includes around 720,000 who were born in India. India has a fast-growing economy and is tipped to compete with China as the world's largest economy by 2075 and that's just over 50 years away. And just as there are human rights problems in China, there are also human rights problems in India. Modi is a very popular leader in India. His approval ratings are around 78%. He's certainly a very popular leader amongst the Australia-Indian community, but he is a populist leader and he's a nationalistic leader as well. The relationship with India does need to transcend whoever the national leader is and whichever government is in place, because that's always going to change at some point in the future. But just as there have been calls for Australia to raise human rights concerns with China, I think there needs to be a discussion about these issues with India as well. Modi came through as an extremely populist leader. There's hints of corruption. He's certainly very popular amongst the Hindu majority in India and has used those numbers to his advantage. His treatment of other religions, and India is an extremely religiously diverse country, his treatment of other religions has been less than stellar, I think is fair to say. He's been connected with all types of unsavoury types, as well. How true that is, I don't know. It's all alleged, etc., etc. But no denying he's extremely popular amongst his followers. There's no denying that. India, too, is a very important country in Australia. We have a large Indian community who have contributed greatly to the prosperity and culture of Australia, who have been valued members of the Australian community since almost white settlement. In 1788. It wasn't very long after that. Trade with India. While India was gaining independence, Australia was moving closer to independence in 1947-48. India is a, a close ally of Australia. So that Modi comes, yes, it should be acknowledged. Yes, he should be welcomed as a head of state. But like uh, other countries, including ourselves, should we ignore the human rights issues 
and the governance issues. Okay, to be fair, the internal governance issues are none of our business. But the human rights issues are our business. And should we have been so cloyingly welcoming? Was there space there to, as friends? Of course, Australia has to be very careful. India does have a large influence in international affairs, politically, economically and culturally, and it makes sense for Australia to have a strong relationship with India, but not at the expense of other relationships Australia has with other larger countries, such as the United States and with China. And having a strong relationship with Narendra Modi is also very good politically for Anthony Albanese. But having a good relationship with Narendra Modi doesn't mean that the hard questions can't be Asked. Now, Modi was the Chief Minister of Gujarat in 2002 when a thousand people were killed during anti-Muslim riots and the allegation was that he encouraged those riots in Gujarat but he was exonerated in 2010 even though there's still a little bit of a cloud over his involvement there. There's also the accusation that the Indian government under the BJP is presiding over a reduction of press freedoms. There's laws that oppress and intimidate activists, journalists, opposition leaders and the intelligentsia. There's also accusations that they've implemented a lot of laws that discriminate against Muslims and Christians. And diplomacy isn't just a case of telling your diplomatic partner that everything about them is bad and using the megaphone to relay your concerns about it. There has to be a time and a place for this, and sorting out issues in India is something that the Indian government has to sort out, not Australia. But it is a matter of letting Australia know what its values are. Yeah, and Australia is not exactly a sterling example of human rights, but we should be leading by example and leading by talk. I felt uneasy seeing the footage of Anthony Albanese at what was essentially a rally and comparing Modi to Bruce Springsteen. I thought that was there were better ways to handle that type of stuff. Again, yes, he's a world leader and you welcome world leaders of a close ally and an important ally of Australia. But yeah, I just felt that it was a little bit off. And we have to remember that Australia is a low-level power. It is a member of the G20, but it's a minnow compared to the United States, compared to China and compared to India. And just like any other similarly-sized country, it has to use what little relative influence it has. It's got to use that sparingly and strategically. And Australia can't start lecturing other countries about human rights issues when there's issues here that need to be resolved as well. And that's exactly what happened with China and the Uyghur issues last year, the China ambassador to Australia effectively said, well, come back to us when you've sorted out your own problems with Indigenous people in Australia and then we might listen to you. And I think Australia would have more clout if they could resolve or at least attempt to resolve these issues with Indigenous people. Now, no country in the world is perfect and Australia certainly isn't, but it is trying to make some amends by creating the voice to It is the only country in the world that has been colonised and doesn't recognise Indigenous people in its constitution and getting the voice to Parliament approved and entered into the constitution, that's not really a concern for other people around the world, but it's important for Indigenous people in Australia and it won't resolve all of those issues immediately, but it's a good start to addressing those issues. And as I mentioned, you don't do these things just for the benefit of the international community, but I think it would give Australia a lot more credibility in international diplomacy. No country is perfect, I think that's fair to say, but some are better than others. 
And I think one of the things Australia needs to do is start to, one, make positive and noticeable changes to its own record on human rights. The voice will lead into this, but also start to talk about this is what we're doing and we think other countries should join us. And when world leaders come along, we've got to talk about your human rights. What are you doing about the Sikh community, to Modi, for example, uh, with the US? What are you doing about Black Lives Matter, for example? Or what are you doing? Well, we've done this and this and this, and things have started to improve. And on the voice to parliament, the media is still platforming Peter Dutton, Susan Lay and David Littleproud. They're being platformed as though they are the government, even though they're in opposition. Now, we're not going to play any of the dog-whistling racist garbage that they've been putting out over the past week, but just to give an idea of how the Coalition treats Parliament and what they like to spend their time on, here's Senator Sarah Henderson asking a public servant in Senate estimate hearings a very, very, very important question. I notice you don't wear a tie um, to estimates. Is there any particular dress code that applies to the department? Um, No. No, so it's quite... I ask people to use their skill and judgement. I notice Mr Windia always wears a tie. Yes. I, was just, I was just interested in whether there's no, I mean, any... I was, uh, and I'm not being, I'm not being no, rude. No, that's, that's fine. I'm so just would... interested because obviously there is dress code in the parliament and, and I was just uh, interested in whether you have any sort of particular dress code in your department. Uh, no, there's no formal dress code to the department. I was sitting in um, in the other committee of Senate estimates yesterday with um, Senator Canavan was not wearing a tie for a period of time, so yep. it's Pocock. So, yep. It's, no, no, I'm just interested. Maybe the sleeves are rolled up because you're doing lots of hard work. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you got that message. I, as I say, I'm not I'm not being rude in any way. I'm just uh, just um, interested in uh, in whether there's any particular standard. So that's what occupies the mind of the Liberal Party and National Party members of Parliament and Senators. It's always a trivial and always on the lookout for an opportunity to score a political point. Now, they've got no interest at all in whether a senior public servant was wearing a tie or not. It's just to embarrass and humiliate the federal government in some way and to waste time. Now, that previous exchange... That only took a minute, but it was a complete waste of time. And it's one minute of everyone's life in that Senate estimates room that they've lost and they'll never get back. And and this is also their strategy with the debate on the voice to parliament. It's to waste time, it's to score political points and get themselves back into the political game somehow. And just like the public servant wearing a tie or not, they couldn't care less about whether the voice of parliament gets up or not. They're using all of this to appeal to racists all around Australia and to score political points against the government. And even on that measure, they're losing that pretty badly anyway. But it's also reflective of their time in government during 2013 and 2022. Do nothing, cause trouble, blame everyone else, score political points and then just endlessly repeat that cycle. Now, every other state and territory branch of the Liberal Party is either supportive of the voice of Parliament or will allow a conscience vote, but not the federal LNP. No corporate entity is publicly campaigning against the voice of Parliament. Every major sporting organisation has announced that they will support the Yes campaign. So the LNP, they are on the outer on this issue, and it looks like they're very happy to stay on the outer with this issue, but not just issue about the voice of Parliament, but so many other issues as well. One of the things that they're trying to do is to make people think it's okay to be racist, to try and get back those 
that group of people who were probably inclined to be racist have realised, nah, it's not, it's not a thing anymore. And those are the numbers that the coalition were missing, that in the general public, the racism hasn't gone, but it's diminishing. There's a whole new generation of upcoming voters who don't see race as an issue whatsoever and who are happy to vote for the best candidate and listen to the best arguments despite the background of the person speaking. And that worries the coalition and it should worry the coalition on on their current trajectory. They're heading down to irrelevance. There is, of course, those on The Voice who are still, oh, you know, I'm not sure. What are they hiding from us? Well, there's a 270-page report Solicitor General's report, plus dozens and dozens of summaries. There's not a lot to hide in there. Oh, I just don't know. And they're trying the whole Bill Shorten, I just don't trust him. There's something about him I don't like about Bill Shorten. Well, what? He seems fairly consistent in his public life. Oh, I just don't trust him. And that's what they're trying to do, that that destabilisation. Because if the voice gets up, and I've said this before, if the voice gets up, it will be the first time a referendum has been won without bipartisan support. And that finishes not only Peter Dutton, but it finishes the Liberal Party. Simon Birmingham, who's where he basically said he's going to uh, vote no, but he's from the moderate wing, but he's towing the party line. And this from the party that allows individual choice and conscience voting. So times have changed and changed drastically. The voice could be what finishes the current Liberal Party forever. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.